Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some hey awesome. Friends. Today we've got a live podcast from the Pepperdine Bible Lectures with our old friend Pete Enns. But before we get to Pete Enns, let me tell you about Podbean. Podbean is an all-in-one podcast publishing and hosting platform. Podbean offers the easiest way to get started in podcasting, as well as advanced features and monetization, that's a big word, to take your podcast to the next level. Podbean's mobile app for Android and iOS allows podcasters to publish and record podcasts right from their phones. Now, Podbean is the company that I used with my church plant when we were starting uh, getting our sermons online. And it is the server, the all-in-one podcast publishing hosting platform that the Newsworthy with Norsworthy podcast uses. It has been a great company to work with, have nothing but positive things to say about them. So go check them out. There is a discount also if you go to podbean.com backslash newsworthy, they'll hook you up. Now, I can't promise uh, that this podcast with Pete Enns is going to be as reliable as Podbean. Podbean's pretty dependable. Pete Enns, never know. But our old friend... Pete Enns doing the thing live from Stouffer Chapel in Pepperdine. Testing, testing, testing. Check one, two. Oh, these are mics and they're recording. What? These are these are being these are mics that are recording and projecting. Yeah, that's how microphones work. Like they unbelievable. Yeah, I don't know if they. But I don't know. You could do both. Is that iTunes? I mean, um, GarageBand. Is that GarageBand? No, I'm, I'm not an amateur. I don't use GarageBand. What I have Logic Pro. Logic Pro, because I'm a professional. Got it. All right, I think these microphones are working. We sound good? Okay, uh, well, everyone, let's welcome tonight. Our guest is not Rain Wilson. So if you're here to see Dwight Schrute, he's not showing up. Uh, if you want to leave, I completely understand that. All we've got is Pete Enns. Yay! Hey. Yay! Okay, how many of you have ever heard of Pete Enns before this evening? Yes. See? See? How many of these people are you related to, Pete? No. <laughs> A few of them? No. 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 Nope. Uh, Pete Enns uh, has been on my podcast. Let's put it this way. I've got a friend of mine named Paul Nevison. And he introduced me to someone about a different podcast. And I said, thank you, Paul. And he goes, Luke... Without me, you know what you'd do? You'd interview Pete Enns every week. Because um, <laughs> you've been on that many times. I, I don't know. Five, six, maybe? More than no, that. we've I, I suffered really through. It's, we're, this is eight or nine. Really? Okay. Yeah, this is a lot. Now, if you don't know Pete, he is uh, an Old Testament scholar. He's written a bunch. Uh, he's probably written three good books. Uh, total, about ten books. Uh, 19, but that's okay. Don't worry. How many have you really written? I think it's 18 or 19. Has it really? Yeah. I mean, that includes things like, um, you know, writing a book with two other people. I have, I mean, it's, it's involves writing. So that does not, but not editing a book, you know, or not contributing an essay to a book. Do you remember remember that time I emailed you and said, Hey, do you know any good old or, uh, commentaries in the book of Exodus? And Did you I say something snarky? And you said something snarky about you wrote a commentary in the book of Exodus. Yeah. You don't... Remember? No, I don't remember that. Okay. I don't remember anything that we talked about, Luke. <laughs> I erased it immediately after it happens. Yeah, my, ther- so, my therapist says I have to do that. Okay. Now, he doesn't remember the podcast, but he also remembers every time I don't mention that his doctor at his PhD is from Harvard. He actually says, I have to say that or he won't come on the podcast. That's not true. That's (laughs) not true. That's a lie. 
Okay, so uh, Pete is an Old Testament scholar. Um, his last book is The Sin of Certainty. Mm-hmm. And the book, anyone read The Sin of Certainty in here? Yes? Oh, look at that. We've got uh, some readers in here. Good. Look at all that. Who's I- bought it? <laughs> there you go. Twice as many. Sean's bought. He hasn't yeah, read it yet. So. Uh, before that, the previous book was, uh, huh? Two chapters? That's okay. That's good. That counts. Yeah. That that's counts. That's good. That's good. Uh, the book before that was uh, The Bible Tells Me So. Right. right. And uh, anyone heard of the book The Bible Tells Me So? Yes. Mm-hmm. Has anyone heard a song with the lyrics, this I know because the Bible, t- right? So it's, just, it's a title that's based off a children's song, isn't it? Did well, you know I mean, that? Was that accident? Well, no, we knew that, but that's more like a phrase a lot of people use anyway. The Bible tells me so. Uh-huh. And the point of the book is, what does the Bible tell you? And the Bible tells you that it shouldn't be used the way you think the Bible tells you to use it. Well, that's I'm going to let that sink in for a second there. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so what we want to do tonight, <laughs> we're going to unpack that. How many um, heard uh, Bob Goff this morning? Isn't he just amazing to listen to? You can't listen to him with a frown on your face. Like, if you do, you need to go talk to my dad, who's a psychologist. Uh, he'll help you work through something. But you can't listen to Bob without going, I'm really enjoying my life right now. And he had, like, the beautiful simplicity of his message was, just love the people in front of you. It's not complex. It's not easy. But it, it, that's what you do. Now, for many, that works. But for others, you go, wait a minute, it's not just that straightforward. And there are questions and there are issues. And you're like, well, what about that stuff in the Old Testament where God tells God's people to kill entire groups of people, including children? You go, that's not very straightforward. And then you go, wait a minute, I hear stuff in science about how the world came into be. And then I hear what the Bible says about it. And those don't go together. So how am I supposed to bring those two things together? And that's not simple. And what I've loved about Pete's work is that he's helped many of us get to the same conclusion that Bob Goff has, which is, you love the people in front of you, but there are a whole stack of questions that you've got to deal with for many of us before you can get to that same conclusion. It's the same conclusion, still love the people in front of you, but there are things you just can't, you can't ignore. And so mm-hmm. in, in that book, you talk about a handful of things that are the big issues that right. people... Right. What do you think the big issues for uh, your professor, your students, the people you work with, the people who read your blogs, what are the main issues that you're dealing with? Well, I mean, I'm tempted to ask the people here what their issues are, because but, but I keep hearing the same ones, and one of them is violence in the Bible. That's, I mean, and the Bible tells me so, that's the first chapter, because that's what most people want to talk to me about, you know, because it's just sort of there. Um, Another issue is science. I mean, and you mentioned it too. It's like, how do I even think about the Bible as being something that's good for me, that's useful for life, when snow and hail are kept in storehouses in the heavens and sort of drop down on you if you're faithful to God, right? Um, so those are two issues. Another issue is, is the human predicament in general, which includes things like human sexuality. It includes... Um, economic injustice, you know, these are the things that at least young people at Eastern that I, where I teach, those are the kinds of things they want to talk about. They're not interested in fine-tuning theology. You know, they're not, they, they don't have the same questions that maybe people of previous generations had. They're much more interested in things that I think are very, very, I would say, practical, things that actually make sense to them and, and that help them define the universe that they live in. 
right? So a faith that actually helps them navigate life as they see it rather than is always at odds with it and having to keep life at, at a distance to maintain your faith. They want to integrate that somehow. So when you think of integrating, let, let's start with uh, science and theology. They want to be able to integrate their theology, but also what scientific evidence is pointing towards. Yeah, right. So how do you go about doing that um, when most people grow up with the understanding that you have to pick one or the other, that they are at odds from each other? Right. You tell them you don't have to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start with that. So, well, yeah, I I think... uh, and Eastern, you know, Eastern, good. That's thank good. you. Yeah, we're doing good. Right, right to the point. Good. Yeah, that's Are we good. done now? Are we timing. Done? Okay, good. It's all about um, timing. That was it. I think, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, Christian college students, they usually grow up in some type of Christian environment. And more often than not, the topic of science and faith comes up typically in more conservative homes and more conservative churches because that's where it's a pressure point. In mainline or more liberal or progressive churches, they don't even talk about it because it's like, we're done with that. We that was 100 years ago. We don't deal with that anymore. And so they do tend to come with sort of a dichotomy uh, between it's one or the other. And usually the dichotomy goes something like this. Okay, I have, I have sort of science over here and Bible over here. Well, I know the Bible. I know what that's doing. How can I make science fit with the Bible? And part of like what I do, my job teaching Bible at, for undergraduates, is to help them see the Bible is a lot more interesting, frankly, than you think it is. It's a lot more complicated than you think it is, which is why people have been pouring over this stuff for over two millennia. And so let's actually dig into the Bible and let's try to understand what we have the right to expect from it. What kind of information is it prepared to give? Is it prepared to give information that can be in conversation with, let's say, modern scientific discoveries? And for me, the bottom line is actually no. It's, 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 not, it's speaking a different language. It's doing something else and not answering those kinds of questions. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sort of like not have that dichotomy. So it's both, but they're asking different questions, giving different sets of answers. But that's, that's a big hurdle for a lot of people to get over. Not at Eastern so much, because of the kind of school that it is. It has sort of a history of asking these kinds of questions. Um, but still, it, it's, it's like, what do I do with my Bible now? Is usually the question that, that results from that. But that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's the place to get to. That's where it gets interesting. Yeah. You know, what do I do with my Bible? It, yeah. I, I would assume for, for many who grew up in the Church of Christ, that was on the table for them. How many of you in here grew up with the understanding that you had to pick either science or Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, right? Many people grew up with that understanding. And so specifically on that issue of like the creation, I don't know, of everything, let's start right there. When you say science will tell us that the world came into existence by some sort of Mm -hmm. big bang, bang, right? Like I'm not a Scientologist, but... um, (laughs) But you say that's, is that a question the Bible is really interested in asking mm-hmm. the process in which the world came into existence? Right. And, and the thing is, the question is, when you read Genesis, how, how are you supposed to read it? That's the question. And that's basically a genre question. We, we read texts according to the genre that they sort of occupy. And, you know, you don't read the sports page like you would 
you know, a political editorial, right? You don't read a fantasy book the way you would read a historical novel, right? And the way the book presents itself to you, there are certain rules and ways of understanding it. The question is, what is the genre of Genesis chapter 1? What is it sort of signaling? Well, that's where it gets interesting. We can't ask anybody, right? We can't assume it's historical. What is it? Well, I mean, the last couple hundred years at least have helped us understand a little bit of this genre of Genesis because we have, we, we found other stories of creation in the ancient world that are different than Genesis but still similar enough that they're breathing the same kind of air. And so when you put these stories next to each other, you're saying, okay, listen, maybe Genesis is functioning in its culture somehow and trying to say something to that culture rather than answering modern questions. Maybe it's actually answering ancient questions. Right? So in the time in which that story is first being uh, orally passed down and then mm-hmm. eventually it's written down, what were the questions that the Israelites were trying to answer uh, to your best knowledge? Well, I mean, for example, Genesis 1 has a lot of overlap with a Babylonian story of creation. If you know the Babylonians, they were one of the two superpowers in the ancient world. It was the Assyrians first, and then the Babylonians. The Babylonians are the ones that took the Judahites into exile in you guys 586. That, you know this. There will be a test, by the way. I don't, nobody's taking notes. I don't know what's going on here. They all know it because they're they Church of it. Christ. Church of Christ. They know yeah. all this stuff. So. They don't have all those instruments clouding their brain. I know. There's more room, <laughs> more room for Bible. That's what we do. Oh, boy, anyway. But, um, <laughs> it, but, but Genesis 1 is similar to this Babylonian story. Just a quick, couple of quick examples. Uh, in Genesis 1, there's light before there are the heavenly bodies. Well, that's like this Babylonian story as well. And it's also difficult for there to be light without, you know, the sun. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just in case you didn't connect that. So that's an unusual thing, you know. Um, another one is that, you know, uh, the, the waters are separated in Genesis, if you know the story, the, the, in, in the first act of separation is day two. The waters above from the waters below are separated. And it's sort of hard to depict this, but at, at the beginning in Genesis, there's this chaotic mass of water. Everything is dark and it, there's a deep. Deep is, is a word for chaos, for a watery chaos. And what God does is he sort of splits this chaos in half. And there's a dome erected, which is often called the firmament, if you read the King James Bible, and some translations have a dome, and it keeps the waters above from the waters below separate. Well, that's interesting. That's sort of weird, yeah. But in this Babylonian story, you have a similar thing where the high god Marduk pierces Tiamat, who represents chaos and stuff and splits her in half from and, top to bottom. And they're related. They're related. That's like a great-great-great-grandmother or something. But um, splits them in half, and with half of it makes the sky, and with the other half of it makes the earth. It's depicted similarly to Genesis. And that's not how you should treat your grandma. Never. Never. Unless she's just a big pain. E- even then, I still don't think you should do that. I, it depends. It's, it's okay. legal in some states. Probably Texas. That's why you're not a pastor. I know. So. Okay. <laughs> So you do Actually, have, you have legal similarities. Texas, let's be honest. Okay, so there's a similarity yeah. in Marduk and Tiamat creating the division. Just, there, there are elements of the creation story that like, they're saying very similar things using different language. Right? Who cares? Well, bottom line is that, oh, and there are other stories of the ancient world too. There, were, there, were, there was overlap between what you see in Genesis. 
And people start thinking, well, listen, maybe, maybe there was just a way of talking about origins back 3,000 years ago. Maybe there was just a way of telling these stories that Genesis participates in. And if that's true, and it certainly seems to be true, to expect Genesis to answer scientific kinds of questions, it begins to feel a little bit like, really? I mean, why would you ever? I wouldn't say that about these Babylonian stories. They're not answering scientific questions. Why would we say that about the Bible? Well, because the Bible is speaking to me. Well, it's speaking to you as an ancient text, though, first. And to try to understand the theology of these writers and what they're trying to do in Genesis, that's, I mean, that's where you do your homework, and that's where it gets sort of fun, and you can sort of see Genesis like, oh my goodness gracious, there's actually deep theology happening in this text. But you don't see the theology apart from the ancient context. That's where the theology made sense. We have to try to get back to that somehow, and, which we can. And to say that it's influence, it's in conversation with Babylonian creation stories does not diminish the inspiration in the text. Sometimes there's an right. even or like, oh, well, you're saying it sounds like that, therefore... Well, no, no, no. One of the things that, that I've come up with and I say on my own is that uh, inspiration is really... Uh, incarnation, mm-hmm. is that it's God taking on the human form. And that's one of the ideas that I came up with by myself. Um, <laughs> Good. You, you Tell think, me more about this idea you came up with by yourself. I've got this book idea. <laughs> but probably Inspiration and Incarnation will probably be the title for it. Um, so, oh, truth be told, Pete and I came up with that together. Um, <laughs> you, you wrote a book about inspiration and, and incarnation. Explain yeah. how inspiration, God taking on human form, uh, go together. Cause right. Well, I, I mean, the way the Christian faith works, how, that's a horrible way to start a sentence. As you if know, I know how the Christian faith as works? As if I know how the Christian faith works. Write the way down. a little part of it works is that there's something about God being among us. And you, you see that in Jesus, right? You see Jesus as a person. You see Jesus walking down the street in the first century. You don't think, oh, there goes the second person of the Trinity. You see a Jew with sandals and and olive skin and all that kind of stuff, right? So the way God participates in humanity is by taking on flesh. And the Bible works in a similar sort of way. It's, It's when God shows up among the people, it usually looks very much like those in cultured expressions that we have, right? Jesus looked like a first century Jew because he was a first century Jew. See, that, the, thing about, that's, that's the, the thing about the incarnation isn't that Jesus, that God became man. He became a particular kind of man at a particular point in time in history with a particular background, a particular flavor, everything. Jesus was not an American, He wasn't Republican, he wasn't Democrat, he wasn't European, he wasn't African, he was Middle Eastern, he was ancient. That's the humanity that God took on. And if you're going to do that, there is baggage associated with that, which is that whole world and way of thinking and way of looking at things. And that's just the way God is. I mean, I might have thought of a different plan, a different way of showing up, but nobody asked me, right? Hmm. This is just the way that it is. When, When God participates in humanity, it's, it's right there. It's very, very concrete, right? Now, if we're going to say that about Jesus, maybe we can sort of use that to talk about the Bible, too. The Bible looks like Genesis 1. Genesis 1 looks like another ancient story of creation with some changes, some differences, but a lot of similarity and overlap. 
which is sort of like Jesus. There's something different about him. If you give him a minute, I'll tell you what it is, right? But Jesus looks like he belongs, and the Bible looks like it belongs, right? So, the, the nature of like in, in, the inspiration of the Bible, the Bible is not inspired because it's totally different and apart and kept at arm's distance from its culture. That's not the way God works, I think. I think God works by participating in those cultures. It's his world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, good, why not? Good job, God. <laughs> the, this view, though, separates us from an understanding of inspiration that like, there's this divine light that came down from heaven, guided the pen of right. the people who were... Now write this, okay, no Yeah, wrong. it was more like transcription, not even right. writing. They were just right. taking... And it puts it in a far more messy environment where mm-hmm. you don't have this clear line between like, the divine and humanity, right. but it's incorporated together. Right. And so it makes it more difficult to really view the Bible as this inspired document when it has so many human fingerprints inside of it. Right, and that's, that's actually the offensive thing about Christianity, and theologians talk about this. Um, it looks so human, right? And, and the Bible looks so human, and how can Jesus be the incarnate Son of God when Jesus looks so completely at home in that first century world? Right. And, and I think that's, that's the beauty, that's the mystery of the Christian faith, that's the beauty of the Christian faith. And that's just the way God rolls, it seems like, you know. And so why would we want a Bible, then, that is sort of just dropped out of heaven the way it is, and the human influence is not involved in that at all, mm-hmm. right? It seems like this move requires you to be more comfortable with mystery, Yes, and if, yeah. if there is a, a book that's set apart, that's not connected to any sort of context, that's not influenced by the Babylonian creation myth, it's not influenced by the the other stories that different uh, cultures in mm-hmm. that same context would have been telling. But right. it, it's connected to that. It, it makes you realize this is far messier, and then you also have to deal with the mystery of exactly the way that God works this way, because it's not always how we expect or demand God to work, and. It seems in your work, part of what you're trying to give people permission to do is to be okay with that tension of this is a little bit harder to stomach, and so I don't have the clear-cut answers and the certainty that I want. Yeah, the, the Bible, I would say, is messy. It's a messy book to read and to try to understand. And, you know, when I talk to my undergraduate students about this, we usually get to the point where I say, listen, welcome to adult Bible reading. This isn't VBS anymore. This isn't adult. This isn't you know youth group. This isn't Veggie Tales. This is a serious book that is diverse. That is a little bit messy, and that people have been thinking about for a very long time. So who are we to come along and say, well, it's this, 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 and this? Obviously, because there's always another person who sees it quite differently, and that's because of the Bible. It's it's not a ten point pamphlet. Right? It's, it's these complex stories that are actually told in different ways in different parts of the Bible. Right? I mean, when, when, when people have views of inspiration that I think don't work very well, I usually just take them to comparing the books of Chronicles and then the books of Samuel and Kings, right? which not everybody reads those books because they sort of keep going. They don't stop. They're very long. Yeah. But you, you, know, you read Samuel and Kings about the monarchy, David and the monarchy, and then you go right to Chronicles, which is, I just read that. I'm not going to read it again, but it's a very different telling of the story. 
And I, to me, that's an object lesson into what is the Bible. The Bible, what is said in the Bible is very much affected by who's writing it and when they're writing it and what they're writing it for. I mean, Samuel and Kings was written at a different time, different place, for different reasons than Chronicles. They tell the same narrative, but they tell it in very different ways because mm-hmm. they have a different audience. and they have a di- They're basically pre- what good preachers do, right? You tell the story in view of what the people are going through, what they need to hear, and how, how God has to touch their lives at that moment. And we see that in the Bible itself. That makes it messy in the sense that it's not this neat 10-point pamphlet that you just memorize and now you know everything. It's this story that meanders and moves and changes, and some things is just weird, and other stuff you can connect with a little bit better, but it's, it's not smooth. It's actually a pretty rough text. Mm-hmm. And we get to try to explore it. And we might be wrong about things, but what if God's okay with that? Right? Mm-hmm. What if we don't have to have it all down pat? What if it's actually true what the ancient theologian said? It's faith-seeking understanding, not understanding first, and then I can have faith. Uh, most people, though, place their faith in God once they understand all the things that they need to. And as long as I understand things correctly, then I can have faith in you, right. God. Uh, so what is a type of faith that's, that's on the other way around? And uh, your definition, I feel like you've used before, is that faith um, is okay to have this complexity because it's really about where you place your trust. And it's where, where you go to, not where you have a full understanding of all the answers. Right. How, like, okay, how would you define faith? I'll let you say it without me trying to interpret your work, mm-hmm. since, you know, you're right here. And two, <laughs> how do you get there? Well, the how do you get there is the more difficult part, but... That's why I said it second. I know, but faith is, I mean, like you said, I, faith is, is more trust, then, and it tends to be, at least in our culture, in, in American Christian culture, faith tends to be um, a content word. Like, what do you believe in? Well, I believe that God exists. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. See, it's, we answer the question with what and with that. Trust is a who word. You have your trust in someone. Right? And trust is much harder. If you've ever taken a trust fall, who's here ever done a trust fall? I've done it once. I just hate those things. You know, do you want just, to try it again? No, I do not. Not with you. That's for sure. I don't trust you at all. Nah. That's hurtful. I don't care. Um, but there's a reason why they don't call it a belief fall. Right? Because I, you know, I, I believe that someone will catch me. I do. I mean, I, I believe that someone will because they're not going to let me drop. They're probably good people. They don't want a lawsuit. You know, they don't want it done to them. The chances of them catching me are 100%. I believe they're going to catch me. Do I trust them to? What do you do? You have to fold your arms, right? So you can't brace yourself and just fall backwards. That's a scary moment. That's trust. And when you read the Bible and you see words like believe or to have faith, you can, on safe ground, just in your mind, cross that out and put the word trust in and read that passage and see what difference it makes. Because that's actually what they're talking about. It's not cognitive content, although that's still a part of the nature of trusting, right? You're not trusting a void or something like that, but um, the, 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 the central part of it is actually trusting God, which is very hard to do. It's, it, trust me, all right? Trust me when I say this. As a biblical scholar, it's very easy to talk about God 
and to abstract God, that's an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. To trust God, that's excruciating because you're actually, you, you have to die to do that. To trust God means you die to yourself, and who wants to do that? Mm-hmm. Even though Jesus would do it anyway. Well, yeah. trust me as someone who's a podcast that, um, I just want to say that yeah. it doesn't sound as cool as, <laughs> like, as an Old Testament scholar. Um, I, I have three daughters, and my middle daughter is named Adeline, and uh, Adeline is very rambunctious, so our bedtime ritual is always crazy because that's what she likes to just... Mm-hmm have a lot of energy. She doesn't yeah. go to bed. And so we, we have this, one of our alternate bedtime routines is what we call a, um, a fall cuddle. Oh. Yeah, so she stands yeah. on her bed with her back to me, and she uh-huh. falls down, and I catch her yeah. um, most of the time. Um, but she, she calls it a, a fall cuddle. Yeah. Um, and what I'm hoping to instill in her, one is, go to bed or I'm going to make you fall on the ground. Um, <laughs> the second thing is that I want her to know that I'm always there. Yeah. And that I will always catch her, uh, which obviously as a parent, you can't even make that promise. Right. But I want her to know that I'm someone you can put your trust mm-hmm. in. Right. And it's easier for me to, to trust in God when I don't have any mystery. It's easier for me to trust right. in God when I have certainty. Yeah. Um, how do you learn to have trust in the who of God when there is so much ambiguity about exactly who God is? Yeah, and I think that's the hard part, right? Because it's not like trusting someone who's physically in front of you. But I think this is why you need the community around you to do that with you, because it's not an individualistic endeavor. It's actually a group endeavor. And I think that's a very biblical idea, too. It's, it's the community of faith. It's not just individuals having faith, which is the American problem. You know, we are very individualistic in our faith, and it's me, my Bible, with a cup of coffee in the morning, and that's how I do this, and that's not how we do it. it how, sh- how should it be done? I think being in regular contact with other people of faith that you can be honest with and where you, where you understand that this is a journey of faith that you're taking, and sometimes it doesn't go well, and sometimes you don't know what you believe, and you want to trust God anyway, and sometimes trusting God is hard. And um, it was it Thomas Merton or somebody talked about, you know, some, I, I, don't, I want to trust you, but I don't really trust you. But at least knowing that I want to trust you helps, or at least that I want to want to trust you. That, that's something that God must accept. Even if you don't, you want to try, and that's, that's a goal that you have. And I think, that's, again, that's a part of this mystery of faith that we're, we're dealing with. And I don't know any way, other way around it, you know, at least at, at my stage in my life right now. I don't I don't think we have that anchor of intellectual certainty about our faith. That comes and goes. There are times when we feel more certain than other times, but that's not always going to be there. You know? mm-hmm. And I think that, that's the hard part. If you have a faith that's rooted in, I have to know what I'm talking about. I have to know what I believe, why I believe it. I have to give you an account for why I believe it. When that starts to crumble, as it almost always does, what do you have left? if your faith is not something that you've been trained in trusting God and in letting go of your own control of the universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was the Live Strong Bracelet story in your Sin of Certainty book, your most right. recent? Yeah. Okay, so you're an Old Testament scholar. You're, you're pushing people towards 
uh, critical thinking to understand that the Bible isn't like this divine light from heaven, but there is inspiration always enshrouded. Is that the right word? In- yeah, is that a word? Yeah, I yeah. think so. Uh, yeah. it, it's always like folded in around humanity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it would be easy to think, okay, well, you're kind of watering down the presence of God. But in your most recent book, you tell uh, like a very mystical story that when I read it, I was like, this almost seems disjointed mm-hmm. to some, but I think this is an example of what we talked about. You, you start with maybe a simplistic understanding of God that, you know, this is how things work, and then you deconstruct that, and you get into this critical thinking, and almost you remove God's presence from your, your life, but mm-hmm. then you've come back around, and you are able to see the mysterious presence of God even in some of the most minute things. Well, and see the illusion of my own sense of control and, and to become more in aware. And other people use the word enlightened. I don't like to use it because it's misunderstood as sort of like a cocky, arrogant thing to say. Not at all. It's like you actually see better now that th- this fantasy of, of, of controlling God with our minds, th- this, the fantasy of thinking that God is subject to our analytical thinking completely. Now, we are reasonable people, right? We're human beings, and we, ration, we, 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 we rationalize things. We, 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 we think, and we can abstract, and that's part of what makes us human. And that, that's never a, um, apart from our life of faith, but it shouldn't drive the ship, right? And I think with the Western intellectualism, it tends to drive the ship, and it drives the ship not just with, I forgive these words, but not just for the liberal bad guys out there. It also drives the ship sometimes for fundamentalists, where their faith has to make intellectual sense, and if it doesn't, they, don't have, they can't have a faith. And I think somewhere in there, we have to build in a very ancient idea of the mystery of God, that we don't actually fully comprehend God and never will. And, and all Christian traditions have elements that get that, whether it's Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or Protestant. They understand that God is ultimately beyond our ability to articulate and to think about. And ironically, the Bible itself demonstrates that by the fact that they articulate God in various ways that don't actually fit together very well. Right. All right, can you tell a story about why you have a live strong brace that's still on your desk? Well, I, I could. Here's the only thing. I told that story this afternoon. I don't know how many of these people were there. How many people were there this afternoon? And why weren't the rest of you there? That's what I want to know. Fine, don't. I worked really hard on that presentation. You guys didn't show. I, uh, honestly, I didn't think there was one word you could have improved on for everything I heard. It was. <laughs> it was. Perfect from what I heard. Well, it was. You don't, yeah, okay, so you don't want to tell the story. I, no, I could. I just want to no, bore people. Fine, if you don't want to. Yeah. I'll tell a story. Go ahead. I don't want to now. <laughs> it, it was a moment of uh, realizing that God was more present in ways that I had not expected in my life. You know, And just very briefly, my daughter had been struggling with anxiety and depression for about 10 years and um, she wanted a live strong bracelet, and I was in Arizona at the time, and she was about to go away someplace where she was going to be away for basically 16 months from home to, just to get the help that she needed. And by the way, I have her permission to talk about this. It's her story, but you know, it involved the family too. Um, but she wanted a live strong bracelet before she was going to be sent away someplace. It wound up being in Georgia, and then she went to Phoenix, and we live in Pennsylvania. Um, anxiety and depression, and it was, it was a difficult time for her. And she wanted a Livestrong bracelet. I couldn't find one. 
But I was in Arizona at the time at a, at a barbecue, and the host of the barbecue was flipping hamburgers. And I was looking all over Arizona, because I, I was there for a week looking for a bracelet. And he stuck out his arm as he was flipping hamburgers, and I saw a Livestrong bracelet on his wrist. And I thought to myself, well, maybe he knows where I can get one. And then another thought flashed into my head saying, maybe he has one to give you. And I didn't ask that question because I thought it was a stupid question, right? In fact, I didn't even ask him a question at all. I just said, oh, you have a Livestrong bracelet. And he answered, do you want one? I have a bag full of them in my closet. I'll give you some, not just one. This plentiful thing that God was doing, I felt, and I still do. Um, you know, I didn't even ask him a question. He, he answered a question I didn't ask. I didn't say, do you have one? I didn't say, can I have one? I just remarked, you have one. Like, oh, you drive a Volvo. <laughs> you know, yeah. you like golf, that kind of stuff. I could have just said that. Oh, you have a list wrong, but he, said, he right away offered me one. He has a bag full in his closet. And that sort of made me step back and say, and, and you know, the backstory of this is my own type A personality who wanted to fix my family and trying to fix my daughter for years, and I couldn't do it, and the stress that that caused me, and over the past year or so, learning slowly but surely that I actually can't do that. I cannot control her existence. I can't control her health. I can't control a darn thing. And that little moment, this, which is a mystical moment for me, was a stupid Livestrong bracelet, that was a moment where I, I just I sensed God's presence saying, would you relax? I'm more involved in this than you see, and I care more than you understand. And uh, it was, you know, I can explain that away. I'm smart enough to talk about, you know, conf- confirmation bias and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's just it's these experiences you can't, just brush off too quickly. You know? How do you have that balance of critical thinking? I'm going to not just have a simplistic understanding of how the Bible is, but also have, on the other hand, a, a, mystic, a mystical awareness of the presence of God and an ability to hold those two together. The thing is, to me, those two things work together. It, it's because of my academic work in how the Bible works that I know that I can't expect it to behave in certain ways, like that rule book that, you know, just follow every verse and do it. So those two things work together for me. It's actually my academic work that drove me to a place where I say, God is so much bigger than this. God has to be bigger than this. You know, so it just, they, they, they sort of feed off of each other. I don't see them as contradictory at all. I think it's just a matter of putting the analytical side, you know, we have these two parts of our brain, right? It's taking that analytical side and honoring it, but without making it like the only thing that matters. You know, part of my struggle in life the past you know, 10 years or so, as soon as I became conscious of it, was to be able to find a way where I can honor my head, but not live there. That's a hard thing to do for modern Western people who are geared towards that. This is very hard for scientists that I know who are essentially atheists because all they know is analysis and testing and math and all these things that's given us so many great things in our culture that we can't take away from, but that's the only way to see reality. Right? I think that's, just, that, that's a 
that's very much a modern Western problem. And, and for me, I, just, I sort of just got over that because it, it seems so utterly boring <laughs> and bankrupt. And you know, if God does exist, can God really be captured fully in our minds? I, I, that makes zero sense to me. Just none. Hmm. Pete, I, I feel like we've solved about everything. Do you want to make a confession of faith now? I, Just, have I you think come so. to Jesus finally? If Luke? you confess that uh, you love a cappella singing now... I do. Do you really? I always have. You always have? Yeah. I've always liked a cappella singing. When have you heard a cappella singing? At Mennonite churches. Okay. On, on TV. Okay. What show <laughs> on TV has a cappella singing? Um, oh, I like the King Singers, for example. Do you know who they are? You don't. No. They, I, or I, the Sacramento Kings? No, 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 no. The King Singers, they're very good. Yeah, no, I don't know who that is. Yeah. Um, have we solved? I feel, I feel like we solved We may everything. have solved pretty much everything. Okay. Have we solved everything? As yeah. we usually do. Okay. Yeah. Um, We've also created some problems, but we solved some things too. No, I don't think we. I don't think we created anything. Um, okay, the um, and you have another book that you're working on now. Yeah, I don't know what it is though. You don't? No. I've got four ideas that they're all like sort of in my head, and I have to pick one of them and do it. Do you want us to vote on them? No, it's too personal yet. Okay. It's like giving birth. I don't want you there, watching it, looking through the window. You know, so I'll let you know when it's there. I'll bring it out. You can see it. So. so. <laughs> It's the closest thing to giving birth that men do is right. I'm convinced of that. Hmm. I feel like that's that using plumbing. that metaphor often will end up poorly for you. I yeah, feel like that's I'll get beat gonna, up a lot by women. Yeah. There's a reason your wife's not listening to this right now. Yeah, right. Yeah, or your kids. Or my so, daughters, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, Pete, thank you for being here. Thanks for, sure, man. Good thanks, time. Yeah, thanks for coming to Pepperdine. We, that's, I was going to say, you're going to tell everybody where we are, right? I'll do an intro. You'll do the intro. This. You do those. Good. Okay. Sometimes. You've done this before. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I will. And I'll tell people about an outstanding all-in-one podcast hosting network called Podbean. If you're interested in starting a podcast, go to podbean.com for more information. <laughs> Use the backslash newsworthy and you'll get a 20% off discount. Really? Or, yeah. That, Pretty good. I, I just, now I don't have to put that at the end of the podcast because okay. I just put that plug in. <laughs> all right. Seriously, thank you all for being here. Let's welcome. Thank you, uh, Pete, for joining thank us. Thank you very much. And thank very thanks happy. for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.